This morning, we continue our sermon series for the month of July, The Minor Prophets. Who cares? Because really, the Minor Prophets are some of the lesser-known names and books of the Bible. So why do we care? In that video, we see pastors preaching to rooms that, with empty chairs. And this plays on the idea that the minor prophets, as lesser-known books of the Bible, are often forgotten or go unheard. But they are also people who deeply cared about God's people. And this is what we want to explore with you further in this series. Now, last week, Pastor Chuck talked about what Haggai cared about. And Haggai cared about rebuilding God's temple. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the prophet Habakkuk to learn what Habakkuk cared about. And this morning we're going to look at three different aspects of his faith. We're going to look at the quality of his faith, the practice of his faith, and the result of his faith. Now Habakkuk is just three chapters in the Old Testament. And just as this book is fleeting in length, so too is what we know of Habakkuk. We know that he was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, probably in or around Jerusalem, and that he was a prophet at the turn of the 6th century B.C. And like the times of many of the prophets we read about, the kingdom of Israel was filled with idolatry and corruption during this time. However, the unique thing about the book of Habakkuk is that it does not directly address Israel. Rather, it is a prayer and dialogue between the prophet and God. And it's a book about wrestling with difficult and evil times. And in our passage for this morning, we're going to hear from both the prophet Habakkuk and God. Now, our scripture reader this morning is Nelda Climbs. So, Nelda, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. If you are able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe that this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So, Nelda, whenever you are ready, please go ahead and read our passage from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, verses 1 through 4. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of an end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Thank you, Nelda. You may all be seated. Chess is a game that happens in three phases. There's the opening, the middle game, and the end game. The opening sets the tone of the game. The first few moves will dictate how the game proceeds. 
And then there's the middle game, and this is where most of the moves take place and most of the pieces are captured. And finally, after most of the pieces are captured, we get to the end game. And at this point in the game, the power of the king is realized. And if you know anything about chess, you know that it all comes down to capturing your opponent's king. Once the king is trapped and can no longer move, the capturing person declares checkmate. It's a strategic game in which you must always be thinking ahead. Now, the average chess player can think two, maybe three moves in advance. A really good chess player can think four, maybe five moves in advance. But a great chess player or a grandmaster can think upwards of eight moves in advance. Now, I'm a numbers guy and a visual learner, so just to put this all into perspective for you, there are over 10 to the 120th power possible moves and combinations in the game of chess. And just so you can see that, here is that number compared to the number 1 million, which I tend to think of as a big number, and our world population at 7.9 billion. So as you can see, that's a pretty big number. There are an infinite amount of combinations and patterns to be able to recognize in chess. Now, I love strategy games, so this is an ultimate classic, and it's over 1,400 years old. And I actually have a board in my office if anyone wants to play. But it's a game in which anticipation is key. You see, the opening phase of the book of Habakkuk begins with the prophet voicing his complaint because he has been anticipating God to make his move. He's been anticipating that God would make his move in Judah for some time now. Yet it seems that God has stood still. Habakkuk is looking at the world around him and he's seeing all of this corruption and this idolatry and it's caused so many people to turn away from God. So in this opening phase of the book, he's crying out to God. He's saying, how long, O Lord, must I cry out for help? Yet you do not listen. This is Habakkuk's first complaint in the book. And he complains that God's not listening. God's not doing anything about all this injustice that's wreaking havoc on Judah. However, now God replies to Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetus people who sweep across the whole earth, seizing dwellings not their own. You see, God tells Habakkuk, just wait. I am at work. I'm doing something even though you don't see it yet. In fact, I'm doing something you won't believe even though I'm telling you. And let me tell you, God wasn't joking. Because he tells Habakkuk his plan to use the Babylonians to punish Judah. Well, understand that Habakkuk is not happy with the idolatry and sin that's rampant in Judah. That's why he's complaining. 
but the Babylonians? He's sick of all this sin because the people are living how they see fit, and he wants God to do something about it. But the Babylonians? God tells him what he's going to do. Yet Habakkuk is perplexed because God's response of using the Babylonians is just unfathomable to him. Babylon makes Judah look like saints. You see, Babylon throughout history and the Old Testament and even parts of the New is the poster child for sin and idolatry. Daniel, Jeremiah, Peter, just to name a few, all make reference to the egregious nature of Babylon's sinfulness. So now Habakkuk responds to God's answer to his first complaint with a new complaint. He says, um, excuse me, God, I'm not quite sure I heard you right. Because it almost sounded like you said you were going to use Babylon. But that can't be right. Right? Like they're way worse than Judah. They're in a league of their own when it comes to sinfulness, when it comes to immorality. They are downright deplorable. But here's the thing, and let's think about this for a few minutes this morning as we get into our passage. Habakkuk has just received an answer to his first complaint. And obviously, it's not at all what he had expected. In fact, it almost sounds more tragic to Habakkuk than what he'd been witnessing around him. So now Habakkuk has to wrestle with something. He's wrestling with his faith in God and his experience of the world around him. How about us? Do we wrestle with the tension between faith and experience? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow tragedy or corruption? These are the things that Habakkuk is wrestling with until he finally cries out to God and says, how can you let this happen? And God's response doesn't seem to satisfy Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, hold on a minute. Because he's having a difficult time wrapping his head around what God has just told him. And it's in this moment that Habakkuk has to really think to himself and really has to come to grips with what he believes about God. Because it's in moments like this that faith is tested in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain and suffering. It's easy to ask why. And if we don't get the answer, it's easy to turn away. Because it's easier to complain and turn away than it is to lean into faith. But Habakkuk doesn't do that. He complains, sure. But he never turns away. In fact, he actually leans in closer. And this is one of the fascinating things about Habakkuk. Because when we read it and we really understand what he is saying and what he is experiencing in this conversation with God... We should stand in awe of his faith. 
Pastor David Bass says that adversity reveals the quality of our faith. Because it's not hard to have faith or to trust in God when everything is going well or it's going according to our plans. But what about when it feels like the world's against us? Or when it feels like God's nowhere to be found? To this, Bass replies, God's silence in the face of our cries for help and his failure to act to prevent the occurrence of horrible things is difficult to understand. But it's really only difficult for those who believe everything about God that Habakkuk believed. You see, Habakkuk in his second complaint, even in the midst of his shock and confusion with God's first answer, trust that God is absolutely still the one in control. And that God is still absolutely a holy, just, good, and loving God. So rather than turn away, he leans in. He digs in his heels. Because even though he doesn't understand, and even though it isn't what Habakkuk wants, he trusts that God is each and every one of those things. And Bass says that those whose faith is strong will continue on trusting in God even when we don't get what we want. But for those who don't believe everything about God that Habakkuk believed, it's much easier to just abandon the faith and to look for faith in oneself. Because if bad things happen, then maybe God isn't as powerful as they thought. Or maybe he doesn't care. His silence and his permissiveness are perceived to be inactivity or to mean that he simply doesn't care. But what Bass is saying is that even in the midst of troubling times, those who believe in a sovereign and good God won't turn away or lose faith when bad things happen. Rather, they will dig in and they will trust in God's faithfulness even when our faith and experience just don't seem to align with what we believe about God. And it is in those moments and it is in that way that we demonstrate the quality of our faith. As Habakkuk finishes his response to God, he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. You see, our main text for this morning begins with Habakkuk digging in, taking a stand. He doesn't turn away from God, but he says, God, I will not move until I receive your reply. I will stand watch on the ramparts. Now, ramparts isn't a common word in our vocabulary, but maybe many of you recognize it from our national anthem or the ramparts we watch were still gallantly streaming. Well, ramparts are a fortification or a wall of some sort that surrounds a city or a territory in order to protect it from attack. And one station on the ramparts is the watchtower, the lookout from which a soldier or guard can keep watch on the horizon for enemy attacks. And this person, their duty is to remain vigilant at all times, to cry out and give warning of any imminent danger. And this, in many ways, was the role of the prophets. 
Well, Habakkuk is standing at the ready, diligently, patiently waiting for God's reply. Which brings us to another fascinating aspect of Habakkuk's faith. And that is his prayer life. Because one of the most difficult aspects of faith is prayer. And prayer is a vital practice often ignored. Because sometimes it feels like God doesn't answer our prayers. Or as Habakkuk is experiencing here, he doesn't answer them in the way we would like or expect. And that can be discouraging. Many people have turned away from the faith because they feel that they've prayed for healing or for forgiveness or for something else in their life that just didn't come or it came in a form that they didn't expect, they did, that they didn't like. But here is Habakkuk, and he's in the midst of this prayer, and God responds, but not in the way he expected, and yet Habakkuk doesn't give up or abandon the faith. Instead, he continues to pray. George Mueller was a 19th century German-English clergyman known for his persistent prayer and for the orphanage that he and his wife Mary opened in Bristol, England. Now the unique thing about George Mueller is that he never once solicited the community for financial contributions and he never once received governmental aid or a formal salary. Instead, he depended solely on unsolicited gifts. And he was vehement in his prayer life, trusting in the provisions of God and God's timing. And he believed that it was through prayer and time spent with God, not in one's own labors, that a person was truly made into a vessel for the master's use. He said, I live in a spirit of prayer. As I walk about, I pray. When I lie down and when I rise up, and the answers are always coming. Mueller was always at the ready to receive God's response. And he understood that if that response didn't come or didn't come in the way that he was expecting, that God must have a reason that God did not simply forget about him or simply ignore him. Rather, it was through prayer that Mueller made himself into a vessel for God's kingdom work. Now again, I like numbers. So in his lifetime, just to give you some perspective, Mueller opened five orphanages. And in those five orphanages, he housed and fed over 10,000 children without ever accepting, or without ever asking, rather, for a dime. You see, we want everything our own way. And we want it now, right? Like, we can admit that we tend to be impatient. I know I can be. And very seldom do we stop and think of the listening part of prayer, of listening for God as part of our prayer life. Because we're not always real willing to wait for the answer. 
Too often our prayer life is treated as a way for us to get something out of our relationship with God instead of as a way to get in relationship with God. You see, prayer is a vital practice of faith. Habakkuk begins his prayer with a complaint, crying out to God, complaining about what's going on, telling God to do something. But God responds to Habakkuk and says, be vigilant, watch, wait, and see what I am doing. And Habakkuk learns that the road back to God doesn't follow the path that we would choose all the time. And it's certainly not always smooth sailing. It's at this point that most people would probably, wouldn't blame Habakkuk if he just threw up his arms and said, forget it. I guess God can't handle it all. But to this notion, Habakkuk says no. He says, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts and I will look to see the response that you will give me. Because for Habakkuk and for believers like us, the answer that God can't handle it or that God is not active in our lives is a lie. Because we know and we believe and trust that God is a God who cares, who has given us his word and has given us his word as a rule for our lives. And it actually in our lament in tragedy, in our, in our lament in difficult times, we can actually find an affirmation of hope in God's provision and in his redemptive work in this world. That even in the midst of difficult times, through our faith, we are not left hopeless or in despair, but rather with an inexplicable joy because of the gospel. Because we know and see things as they are now. But we know that God doesn't just see them as they appear now. He sees them in their consequence. And that through the message of the gospel, God is indeed working all things for good. That God could take something as heinous as the act that occurred on the cross, the punishment of his son, the evil that took place in the death of his son. And that he could turn that for an ultimate good that has eternal consequences for each and every one of us that we still cannot fully comprehend. I want to conclude this morning with a story. And it's the story of a man named Paul Morphy. And Paul Morphy was born in New Orleans in 1837 and is considered to be one of the best and most brilliant, if not the most brilliant, chess players of all time. The story known as the anecdote of Morphy goes something like this. One evening, Paul Morphy was invited to dinner at an esteemed colleague's house. During the meal, there was a painting in the dining room that caught Morphy's attention. 
It was the copy of a famous painting that once hung in the Louvre in France by Moritz Retsch, and it's popularly known as Checkmate. The inscription at the bottom of the painting says, Satan playing at a game of chess for a man's soul. And on the left, we see Satan sitting there smug, looking triumphant. And on the right, a woeful man who seems to have just lost his soul to the devil. Well, after dinner, Morphe gets up and he walks over to the painting and he studies it carefully for quite some time. Eventually, his colleague walks up and stands next to him and says, I see that you're admiring this painting called Checkmate. And it's at this point that Morphe, without breaking concentration, says, well, that's incorrect. Because I think I can take the young man's game and win. And the other gentleman, in astonishment, says, impossible. Can't you see how many pieces the devil has left? Not even you, Mr. Morphy, can retrieve that game. Calmly, Morphy replied, Yet I think I can. Suppose we set the men and try. And by this point, everyone in the room has turned their attention to this conversation at the painting. And so the game was set. And the people gathered around as Morphe beat the devil. Thinking that there must have been an error, that he must have made some tremendous blunder, the game was reset. Time and time again, others tried their hands at it as well. Yet every single time, Morphe took the young man's game and won. How? Well, you see, Morphe was a world champion chess master. And only he could see the full picture. Only he could see the possible moves. And he could see them in a way others couldn't. And what he could see was that the king still had one more move. You see, God assures Habakkuk that the answer is coming. He says it awaits an appointed time, but it will not prove false. It will linger, so you must wait and be patient, but it will certainly come. And I need you to trust me, because it's not going to happen in your timing, but in mine. And it did. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. You see, what Habakkuk cared about was a living faith, was living by faith. And God reaffirms this in verse 4. He says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The end of the book of Habakkuk is prayer and praise in which he submits and trusts in the power of the king. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crops fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. 
Because Habakkuk recognizes that right now they are in difficult times, that there is no more fruit on the trees or on the vines, that the fields are yielding nothing, that the crops are gone. Yet still God has not forsaken him or his people. But that he is on the move, even if it is in ways that Habakkuk can't understand. So he says, I will still rejoice in God my Savior. Habakkuk knows that only God sees the whole picture. That sometimes what looks like the right move in our eyes is not because we are not able to see it in the way God does. And that then we must trust that God's word will come to pass just as he says it will. And that he is working for the good and restoration of his world, of his creation, because he is indeed a God who cares. Therefore, persistently waiting in the goodness of a God who cares and praying is an act of faith for that hope in restoration and eternal life. And we have the assurance of that goodness because Jesus Christ has conquered evil and he has conquered death on the cross and reigns now at the right hand of the Father as our King. In all of this, Peter says, you must greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you did, do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Because the victory has already been won. And the king is still on the move. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning as we come to worship you. We give you thanks for a faith that is worth far more than gold and which will never perish. And because of that faith, we do lift to you these praises. And I just pray that you would help us in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of pain and suffering and trials, that we would lean into our faith and that we would trust in you and your word and that we would live by it to the best of our abilities each and every day. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen.